Hello and welcome everyone to another awesome episode of Altitude. I'm Woody Woodworth, of course. And today I have a great guest for us. Super excited to get into all the material today with Stephen Saunders, who most recently is the founder of Silver Linings, but as many of you may know, a very well-decorated uh, author and veteran of networking and telecommunications. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Woody. You can call me Steve. Only my mum calls me Stephen, and that's when I'm in trouble, so it makes me shudder a bit when people call me <laughs> okay. that. It's nice to be here. I really appreciate you having me on the, uh, on the, on, on the show today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Absolutely. No, the pleasure is mine. I know we have a lot of cool topics we can cover. We are, we are like minds, you and I. Absolutely. But first, let's talk a little bit about Silver Linings, because that's kind of your latest project. You've had many successful projects, but this is kind of the new hot one. Yeah. What led you to create this, this website and industry forum? Um, was it that you kind of saw that there was this niche and need for a place to really focus on modern communication and, and modern networking? with, you know, a focus on cloud and multi-cloud, or was it that you just woke up one day and had a eureka moment and just decided, hell, I'm going to do this? Like a, uh, moment. Um, a little bit, it was, uh, essentially a realization that, uh, we were in the middle of one of the great transformations that the communications industry goes through every so often, uh, but that this one was, uh, particularly accelerated. Uh, the cloud transformation that we're going through, the uh, rise of the hyperscalers has taken everybody by surprise. Uh, the challenges that uh, CSPs and telcos are having in monetizing uh, their networks have been significantly worse than anybody thought. Uh, the advent of 5G, which frankly has been something of a disaster for telcos because they thought it was going to be a way to charge consumers more, and that's not really what... 5G is for, uh, and then the entire cloud and, and multi-cloud ecosystem and the emergence of that and the complexity that that brings right down to the level of what is it that uh, an individual who works at a large enterprise or a service provider, what is it that they do uh, for a living and what, uh, how do they outfit themselves for that rule? Do they need open source uh, enterprise IT abilities or uh, five nines, uh, telecom SLA oriented skill sets. They need to know about OSSBSS, um, or, or, or a whole slew of other data center technologies, or do they need both? And when I looked out, um, and did an analysis of the media, uh, which is obviously what I, I do for a living is, uh, integrated media. Uh, I didn't see anything that was answering those questions. Um, I saw some very good information on, uh, vendor websites. And that was about it. And, and also there was a sort of weird, uh, miasma, uh, around this area, which I think is driven by, uh, the fact that it is really complicated and difficult to understand. So there were a lot of people talking very, very quickly and using lots of, lots of words. But if you actually stopped them and said, Hey, hold on a second, what does that really mean in the context of what we do now, uh, is extremely chaotic. And that, of course, is a, a publisher's dream. We like chaos as publishers. Uh, and so I reached out into the market and I encountered some very interesting te uh, technology uh, and also some interesting companies, one of which is obviously Aviatrix, which has become, you know, almost like a, a totem for all of the, you know, the energy in this, in this space around multi-cloud. You brought up 5G 
and implicitly the kind of awkward relationship between the cloud service providers or CSPs and the telco industry insofar as, and I think you would agree with me, the rise of the CSPs also predicates in some ways a threat or challenge to your traditional telco market, right? They're building or have built the largest private networks in the world. Yeah. They are certainly looking to partner and optimize their relationships with telcos. And they are certainly aware to your earlier point that 5G is a technology that, in my opinion, ultimately its beating heart might not be consumer driven. Absolutely. It was written that way. It was written that way. And I think a lot of people didn't read the, uh, it was like a student taking an exam question. They didn't read the question properly. Uh, you know, the service providers, they're like uh, my son, when we get a new dishwasher, he won't read the instruction manual. It's a disaster. You know, you open it, there's the cat in there. Uh, you know, it's like, no, you're not supposed to put him in there. And, uh, but you've got to read the instructions. And there are 103,000 patents for 5G. Uh, and an awful lot of them uh, have nothing to do with consumer capacity. Right. So maybe we could characterize the relationship between the CSPs and the telcos, in some instances, frenemies, who's going to own really that next generation of 5G services. So we've talked on the show a lot about future innovations and networking and security that are happening in what I call the overlay, right? Which are the services that the CSPs build and provide on top of their infra, but never really drilled into the infra game. So as 5G becomes more and more interesting to industry professionals and the CSPs that want to build services to harness it, how does that impact the future of cloud in terms of where services are going to be built, where services are going to be optimized for? In other words, 5G allows this incredible penetration deeper and deeper into the last mile. And I would argue to the point where the last mile starts to become irrelevant. Yeah. You've got to get it over the infrastructure in the core. Absolutely. I mean, you've got your 5G uh, last mile. And first thing we need to clear up is that it has to be 5G going into 5G, right? It can't be 5G going into a 4G, 4G LTE core. That doesn't work because then all of the clever stuff, uh, which 5G supports which isn't, you know, capacity, it's things like network slicing and, uh, you know, the ability to program different types of services to run over it, all of that good stuff that has to have five uh, GSA, uh, core. And, and so you have to have that, but then, you know, where do those services go, uh, when they get closer to the heart of the network, when perhaps they've gone through a data center and now the other side, and there, there is a huge smorgasbord of different, uh, approaches vying to uh, add uh, the capabilities you need as a service provider to run uh, those sort of sophisticated applications over a, over a cloud core. Now, you know, without getting too pitchy for you on your behalf, that's what Aviatrix does, right? I mean, uh, you have the capability to run over uh, an AWS gateway and add a lot of intelligence there. Uh, IBM has just, you know, bought 30 companies to try to do the same thing. And, and both of these things are, for me, uh, an example of what I call the telcoification, terrible word, but you know, I, that's okay. Telcoification of public cloud, right? You know, I think Woody, you, you, you're going in the same direction, not put words in your mouth, but you were saying, you know, that last mile sort of becomes uh, irrelevant, but in the core, the public cloud almost becomes 
irrelevant as, as, as an area on the topology of the network, because if you're adding all of these other capabilities uh, to enable the public cloud to act in a sense uh, with that sort of telco capability, then, then, then you are moving towards this peaceful kingdom of technologies at some point in the future. And I don't know if that's in 10 years or five years or 20 years or whatever, but then you are talking right. about a network which can support both telco and enterprise traffic seamlessly. And actually those old definitions of who's sending what onto the network almost become irrelevant, I think. That's, that's Nirvana, isn't it? That's where we want to go. Right. Uh, but there are some big pieces of the jigsaw missing at the moment. That is unusual, though. It's unusually chaotic uh, in the communications industry at the moment because we used to have uh, the rule book. That's different. That's not following any rules. And so that's why for a company like Aviatrix, you, you have this opportunity to come in and go get ahead of those curves and say, ooh, you know, that's a big problem. Let's really focus our energies on solving that. And, and other people are, are kind of following in your footsteps there, I think, uh, a bit. The question which I, which I would ask you, Woody, is, you know, does it keep you awake at night to sort of think, well, what if AWS turns around and says, hey, those pesky aviatrix guys, you know, they're, they're doing all of this clever stuff, which, you know, makes us look great. Um, why don't we just do that? Because we have unlimited money and uh, intellectual capital. Why don't we just go and do what aviatrix does and 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 they don't seem at all interested in doing that which is quite weird isn't it uh, i i guess because it's a distraction from making trillions of dollars perhaps uh, but actually you have a very friendly relationship with them don't you so why, why do you think that is that they don't want to take you on in your own backyard as it was there's a lot of reasons to it's a great question first still i would argue that csps are primarily focused on data and data innovation insofar as when you're acquiring a new big Fortune 100, Fortune 500 customer, part of the CSP sales motion is to ensure that the data state is firmly anchored in the cloud. Because once you own the data from an innovation perspective, all of the workloads that farm off it like a constellation uh, will thus follow. It's all about initially movement of data so that you can get it very close to the services that will add value to it, like AI and machine learning and deep data insight and data slicing and dicing and these things. This data-driven approach means that it's really the workloads and the data that the CSPs are laser focused on because that's what's driving their economy. Yeah. And the network is something that is important to them, but it is not important to them from a united perspective, yeah. right? CSPs are still themselves frenemies. They have partnerships like OCI and, and Azure or Microsoft, and you see places where they're coming together to provide cool infrastructure offerings, but still they're highly competitive. Yeah. And it's not in their benefit to offer a uniform connectivity model, especially one that evangelizes cloud operations. To that, mm -hmm. they've just said, listen, there's people in the industry that enterprises have already picked that are old school players that are in our marketplace. And for sure, one of these will rise to the top. And they're not fundamentally the people that are driving their, their big businesses focused on network overlay technologies. CSPs have begged, bartered, stolen, and frank, you know, frankly, they've, they've attracted and kept and retained some of the brightest minds in the telco industry because they're, they're underlay monsters and they're brilliant at it. 
building these massive networks that are super redundant and right. super intelligent. But they've shortened the stick on the people that are building the digital infrastructure services on top. And they're just like, oh, someone from the market will come do this because we're so focused on data and innovation. We're just going to kind of let others play in this space. But what they don't miss, or what they have missed, excuse me, is this innovator's dilemma, which one of my guests talked about, Luke, on a previous show, which is that your traditional networking shops fundamentally don't understand cloud mm-hmm. just from a DNA perspective. And they're already so competitive with each other for traditional networking things because hybrid is real. They have a whole data center business that they have to keep run, running and, and be competitive there that they're not building infrastructure services in the cloud mm-hmm. that follow a cloud operational model. The CICD pipeline DevOps thing is just not something that they've the secret sauce for they still have yet to discover, right? That they right. haven't really cracked the code on how to make this stuff agile. So that's where companies like Aviatrix come in. I mean, that's when I saw Aviatrix, I'm like, okay, so this makes a lot of sense. They're doing uniform, consistent networking stuff, but more importantly, it's agile, it's programmable, and it's going to cater to the people that are wanting to move fast in cloud so they can take all their tools that they're using to build these applications and use these same tools to build the network. Hmm. That approach to me was super unique. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to win. Well, you are innovators and and, and that's, I think, part of the value of the Aviatrix model and uh, particularly uh, to define the market as clearly as you have, because as I said, when we were first talking, there's a lot of confusion out there. So uh, being able to sort of co-opt this space and identify it with your company is, is, is incredibly important at a marketing level. Of course, you actually have to do it, but uh, clearly there's been very significant amounts of money being spent on the technology innovation. And innovation has stalled in a few different places outside uh, of Aviatrix. And one of them obviously is in the, in the telco and tier one service provider market. Uh, companies like that are typically spending 1% of their revenue on R&D, that's a tiny amount of money. And, you know, they're kind of trapped in that because uh, traditionally, uh, you know, they're funded through the bond market. And so all of that stuff's just trying to keep track with inflation, which is obviously challenging at the moment. So it doesn't leave a lot of money left over uh, to be justified putting into R&D. So they're done. Uh, and they then go and rely on traditional telecom uh, manufacturing companies uh, to provide the necessary skill sets which they need. And some of them are a lot further ahead than others, is all I would say about that. I don't want to name names here, but some of them have sort of seized that nettle early and got ahead. And some of them uh, are increasingly looking like they may they may not have got the memo about what's really going on. But in some ways, I look at Aviatrix as kind of an outsourced R&D department for the industry. Because there is obviously so, and this is your background, obviously. I mean, how long have you been at Aviatrix? A couple of years now? Yeah, about a year and a half. I mean, and they hired you for a specific, uh, you know, set of skills, as they say in uh, in Taken, but the, the Liam Neeson phrase. I mean, it, it wasn't just for your 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 witty banter and your sartorial elegance. You you have the the black belt qualification from Microsoft. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. I've said this before, but it's a good chance to say it again. The people that really have become deeply skilled at building overlay networks in the CSP arena are few and far between because the CSPs tend to snap these people up or recruit them and train them. Again, I've mentioned this before, but 
there's a lot of certification surrounding traditional data center technology, CCIE, CCNA, Juniper has, you know, their certifications, which are right. well known. Uh, but these certifications have not been evangelized or standardized for cloud networking at all. So the few people that really know cloud networking all come from School of Hard Knocks. The only way to, to really learn it is to either work for a partner like Equinix or something. Yeah. or CSP and just get into the guts of the machine and talk to hundreds and hundreds of customers until you see these patterns emerge. And it's it's tremendous trial and error. Right. You're trying to uh, ameliorate that lack of training, though, with your ACE uh, program. Is that is that the purpose of that? Is that is that what its goal is? It's to upskill people uh, to be able to build overlay networks or participate in building them? Yes, 100%. I mean, Steve Mullaney, of course, has perceived this massive gap in the industry, which are qualified IT people that are trained up in multi-cloud networking because the industry is strongly tilting to multi-cloud. I think Gardner recently said 77% of Fortune yeah. 500 is in multi-cloud and that's going to increase and that there isn't really any kind of certification in multi-cloud networking, like it's chaotic, like you said, right? Yeah. And chaos provides all this opportunity, but it's really, it's, it's a mess. Yeah. So the ACE program is there to first just educate practitioners, IT pros, anyone who's interested could be developers, DevOps as well. Of course, they're part of this whole journey um, to come in and first just learn about the fundamentals of these different CSP network stacks and then learn about how to make them all play nicely together with, with the Aviatrix uh, overlay, the secure cloud network. Yeah. How, how long does it take to get fully certified with ACE? Oh, I think if you really become dedicated, you could probably knock out three base ACE courses in under a couple of months. Really? The associate you could knock out in a day or two. And then there's a, you know, a couple of more fundamental ones um, that are architecture based and DevOps based. And those you could knock out in a week apiece. It's, you know, just have to squeeze it in. But really, you, the stuff, once you actually peel it apart and understand the terminology and the acronym soup starts to fall together pretty quickly. A lot of it is just figuring out what these terms and cloud really mean, these different products and network services yeah. and how they kind of relate on-prem things, you know, there's a shadow effect there. Yeah, it's it's incredibly complex. To my shame, one of the first things which I did before I launched Silver Linings was announce, oh, we're going to do a taxonomy of this stuff. And then yeah, now we don't talk about it because it turns out to be so incredibly complicated. And uh, and also you did it. So I just send them to your course now, which is, you know, Steve's much happier about that. So, uh, you know, uh, and, and it also has the benefit of your course having been prepared by people like you who really understand this at a DNA level, which is hard, isn't it? What do you think about this? Um, somebody was saying when I was, when I was first launching the site, they were saying it, it may help you uh, to think of cloud as a giant data center. Just think of it as a data center. You know, it's just a huge data center, um, you know, sort of amplified over, over a continent or something. Do you think that's a helpful analogy? And where does it take us if we follow that through in terms of uh, what's actually happening? Because, it, you know, we still build our cloud within data centers and then extrapolate them out over, over huge distances. Where does it take us in the future? What happens to the edge of that cloud then? It feels like that's going to be an opportunity for interesting 
development by some companies, doesn't that? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think first and foremost, explaining cloud to people that are new to it or just want to know really what's happening there as a giant data center is both helpful and enlightening. It helps demystify mm -hmm. uh, what the CSPs are really doing. They are just giant data centers that are built to accommodate massive multi-tenant services. Mm -hmm. And these multi-tenant services have different infrastructure requirements depending upon whether they are IaaS, PaaS, or SaaS. So the look and feel of the metal and the cabling and the architecture underneath has been optimized for these different multi-tenant experiences and how much visibility and control each you know, each of these services yields the customer, but the recipe for hyperscaling, um, which to, to be fully honest, AWS really got right first. That is one right. of the reasons why they are still in a dominant position in the market. They really took hyperscaling seriously because their retail side required it. And through this growth curve, they went to expand their retail market. They realized, oh, holy hell, we have all this amazing ability to, to flex our infrastructure capacity and to scale it and where we have extra compute what right. can we do with this and let's farm it out you know and that was kind of the beginning of it um but of course microsoft also was very early in the data center market with msn and what was called bpos business professional online services which is the grandfather of o365 so they were close on the heels of amazon um, and have a tremendous amount of experience building big data centers so that is now a well-oiled machine which means that the CSPs are going to turn their attention to those areas that are still ripe for innovation and ripe for hyperscaling, which is the edge. Uh, that's next on their target because, again, the regions, other than building new regions in new geographical locations to shave down the last mile, uh, becomes the next viable target. And in fact, I just want to make this point, there's only so many places you can build a big cloud data center. You have to have the right power requirements. It has to yeah. be geologically stable. It has to have cheap enough real estate to make the investment worth it because these are very large locations. They need to be close to metropolitan areas. So there's only so many places on the monopoly map left. Right. I mean, I, I can't just put a region in the middle of the Gobi Desert, right? I mean, the environmental factors there, it, it can't be, it's like Goldilocks, can't be too hot, can't be too cold. They have to worry about cooling and power in these things. Right. Another reason why you have to drive it to the edge, latency was the number one problem that a lot of my customers were trying to solve when I was a black belt. So I remember conversations where they would move all their data in the cloud. They would build a private circuit like Express Route or Direct Connect or Fast Connect, and they would light up their hybrid application on-prem or in a campus that would want to consume this data. And then they were heartbroken when there was, you know, 10... 30, 40 milliseconds of latency. Mm -hmm. And they would come to me and they'd be like, why isn't this working? And I would say, well, the cloud is neat and special. It has all kinds of services, but networking is still networking and fiber optics are still fiber optics. And the speed of light and glass is the same. And they'd say, well, how do we fix this? I would say the same way you fix it in the data center. You yeah. cache it, you compress it, you deduplicate it, or you literally move physically the two things closer together. So there's only so much space for regions. There's only so much benefit to investing multiple billions of dollars in building these huge hubs because what really needs to be done is to bring the data closer to the customer. Is that happening? It's happening a bit, isn't it? 
Yes. It's happening in different ways. It's happening where the CSPs are partnering with telcos and saying, let's put a mini cloud, if you will, which might be 20 or 30 racks or something right. that's the size of a ship container in your pop, like an AT&T pop or Verizon pop, or let's put these stacks on prem. But I think it's going with 5G is going to become even more profound. Let's put a cloud stack, you know, at every office, at every floor of the office. I, I agree with you. I think the actual physical form factor, which we don't get to hung up on usually with, with cloud, which is a sort of a mistake, because as you say, you can't ignore need, uh, you know, air to breathe and, and so on. I mean, it is a fundamental, uh, the infrastructure in which the cloud is housed in. I don't talk about form factor very much, but we have sort of, um, you know, cloud envoys in some ways in the form of some of these consumer devices, which sit there that you can talk to and uh, ask them to turn the lights on and off. I mean, in a sense that they provide an analog for what uh, a cloud node might look like at some point in the future, particularly if we slim the functions down to a few VMs and we go through some process of miniaturization. I mean, I was a bit disappointed because in, in another uh, role, I'm a vice chairman of a, a cloud service provider, and uh, we were talking about uh, putting micro data centers in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was a bit disappointed that the micro data center, as you say, was the size of a complete shipping container. I was like, surely we could make this a little bit smaller than that. Uh, and then it turns out that actually that's not something which a lot of people are doing. I think Equinix is starting to look at some things like that. Um, there are some startups, one of them is in Australia, where they actually put uh, some of the racks and they bury them under the ground. So you have a sort of James Bond type effect with the button that you push and then the door opens like this. And they're putting them on street corners and things like that. So, so there is some work going on around um, form factor, which I think is interesting, but it's a different, it adds another layer of complexity to network design. Uh, and I think another piece going back to the software and the application side of this, which is going to be critical is AI, isn't it? And and AI and, and its role in automation. Going back, I'd like to just rewind a little bit, Woody, to one of your comments about like how, how do we deal with latency? And you were saying as a Microsoft black belt, you would have to do all, all sorts of workarounds to help them. At some point, does that kind of work get automated? Can we use AI to help us? And where are we on the journey to, to that kind of configuration help with, uh, with those technologies? I'm going to be really honest. I think AI in terms of intelligent networking is ripe for innovation. I don't think I've yet seen a company harness a mature AI system to really build an intelligent overlay. It's happening in the underlay. Like I said, CSPs are underlay monsters and they have tremendous talent here. So they're using AI and, or AI augmented systems to make their underlays more resilient and to do error detection and, you know, to comb through logs and uh, what would take a human two weeks for correlation will take the AI two minutes. So that's happening, but you don't see anything really happening on the overlay level, especially across multiple clouds. So there's a tremendous opportunity in the industry for this. And a lot of it just has to do with the fact that right now AI is focused on business data, not infrastructure data. What's hard about AI and ML, remember, is that first you have to train the model. Mm. And in order to train the model, you need a really good data set. Mm. And sometimes with the modern network, feeding a pristine network data set into the model becomes challenging. So if we look at the kind of data set that the internet yields, 
it's very messy because the right. internet is constantly shifting and changing. It's so multi-tenant and there's so much good put and bad put on there. So it's got to happen in private networks first where customers have end-to-end -end control over the data and can feed these AI neural nets uh, good data to train them. But I think in the next three to five years, we will see people turning the lights on in terms of, okay, I've now optimized a lot of my data with AI and ML that's business-driven. Now I really want to get down into infrastructure. But businesses that are smart that aren't going to wait for enterprises to take that step can get ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely one of the bleeding edges of the technology which everybody's working around. What is the, uh, what's your take on the recent stories about risks related to security as it uh, being derived from APIs? Is API security something that Aviatrix is, is concerned about or is looking at? Yes. Aviatrix is focused on, for now, the network and network security stack of the zero trust model, which is an important piece of the total zero trust network architecture model, meaning you have to assume breach. Um, you have to assume the fact that digital sprawl and shadow IT will always be growing to some degree faster than traditional IT can keep up because of all the tools and CICD pipelines that enable this growth. And that what you want to do is build your infrastructure, meaning your network position, your firewall position, your routing position, to be very resilient to east-west and, and proliferation. So API attacks, of course, um, really started getting very serious in the industry around 2011. You had some high-profile tank attacks that were API-based attacks. Uh, Citigroup, RCA, Sony, and people realized, oh my gosh, we're building all these API fabrics because of the modularity and ease of use, plug and play, as long as we have these APIs going. And really, it's, it's a two-part thing. It's not just the language of the API, which is a lot of RPC and a lot of markup language like XML and, and JSON and SOAP and things. It's the method in which the relationships between the API brokers are instantiated. That is where other players in the industry are laser focused in cloud right. native application protection or CNAP. So it's about making sure that from an IT perspective, network perspective, the trusted relationship between these API brokers is really buttoned up. Right. Remember, the hackers that are involved in this, the very serious ones that are going for the, the, the billion, hundreds of billions of dollars of ransomware, have day jobs. And a lot of them are working as, you know, API developers, application developers, and they're seeing what's failing in their own businesses. Right. And they're then extrapolating that to attack other businesses and other industries. Right. So yeah. it's a very serious problem now. But again, it has to do not just with the quality of the API, but the trusted relationship from an identity perspective between the API brokers, which is still very easy to break. I mean, a lot of people's reassurance around uh, security in general uh, and indeed cloud performance in general comes from operating within the right ecosystem, doesn't it? And I'm sure that that's true of Aviatrix as well. I mean, you have a pretty clear, clearly defined ecosystem, I'm assuming, for companies that you work with for other parts of the solution. Is, is, is that right, Woody? Yeah, I think from a security perspective, Aviatrix is focused on embedding security into the overlay, right. which 
really has been a big miss from some of the other players in the market. You don't see anyone that's really minting as a programmable artifact security into the data plane. It's still bolted on. So right. they're building uh, these overlay networks using CSP native tools, but then in comes my firewall on a trolley, in comes my WAF on a trolley. Maybe it's cloud native, maybe it's marketplace. But then when you when you bolt on these security systems to the network, you create a strange bedfellow because yeah. the network doesn't anticipate this thing. Yeah. The, the network has its own system of routing, which is very unique and CSP specific. And it's basically just wanting to move data as efficiently as possible and to make it easy to develop applications. It doesn't like to hairpin and bend data away from its intended path. So when you bolt a system on, you get involved in a very intense uh, routing game that a lot of security professionals don't want to play. Right. It's not their bailiwick, right, to be BGP masters and to figure out how to suck all these routes in and maintain it. So if you embed security into the network and then make that network distributed, you solve one of the biggest pain points in the industry, which is the frustration and lack of agility that bolting on creates. Yeah. And then from there, you get into cloud data automation. You get into making sure that your policy, which is centralized, will be reflected not just in the overlay, but the actual CSP security system itself. So if we can't cover it through some kind of overlay, just tell the CSP what to do mm -hmm. and your policy can be working at multiple levels, which is uh, super cool. Yeah, it's also sort of the end goal of what people are really trying to achieve here. So it's great that you're providing that capability. Yeah. I thought it was interesting for me the other day that I was talking to the general manager of IBM's new, uh, essentially it's a networking division, and he name-checked Aviatrix as, uh, and we're, we're going into this space which Aviatrix is occupying. That's a pretty good hat tip from uh, one of the largest and most illustrious computer communications companies in the world. You must feel good about that. Yeah, it, it's nice to get the recognition. Yeah. It really is. We've grown a tremendous amount since our inception is just kind of an AWS orchestration platform maybe six, five, six years ago. Now, really, I think are where we need to be, which is, you know, full-on multi-cloud network elegance, security elegance, um, because that is predictive, again, of where the industry is headed. Yeah. And it's also important to know that what began as kind of a dull murmur three or four years ago, which is now hockey sticked into a full roar, which is the uh, cloud digital innovation teams handing the keys of the kingdom back to IT and saying, okay, we pioneered. We've learned enough about cloud to know how to build applications and to scale them, but really infrastructure is not our cup of tea. Right. And we need to bring the networking and security professionals from the data center back into the mix because they're the people with decades of experience here. But right. then on top of that is, okay, how do these people ramp up quickly? Yeah. Right. So to rise to the challenge, which is they've been given, which is, oh, it's serious now. SAP is going into the cloud. I don't trust digital innovation people to secure SAP. I trust them to build it and optimize it. But when it comes to security, that's not what they should be doing. So firewall team, cybersecurity team, come on. And they're like, oh, okay, how do I... How do we do this? What, are, what is my set like? That's that's what's happening right now in the industry. And that's another place where I think Aviatrix is doing interesting things and, and getting some recognition. So that's cool. Yeah, it certainly is. You have a very nice way of bringing some of these internal dialogues to light, Woody, for people. Because that 
I'm sure some of those conversations are probably maybe a little bit more robust and uh, maybe a little bit <laughs> sharper around the edges than, than, than yes. you make it sound very collegial. One last question for you before we part ways, and hopefully we have a chance to collaborate again. I'd love to. What do you think is going to happen in the next three to five years with 5G? You're a lot more focused and indebted to this topic than, than I am. I'm I'm an overlay guy, not really a, a wireless expert. So um, you mentioned the telcoification of the industry and 5G really becoming an industry focused or it has been since its inception. The CSPs have figured this out. They've cracked the code. What does that mean for CSP evolution? Like, you know, 2028 20, or something. I think in addition to sort of telcoification, Cloud, I think there's a verticalization of 5G is really the big story right now. It's what is the purpose and what is the reason for 5G's existence? As I said before, it's not just a, a bandwidth upgrade to drive ARPU amongst consumer spending for telcos. Actually, there's very large amounts of 5G standards were really developed around being used inside buildings uh, or for industrial applications. And all of a sudden, we're now seeing as an industry, people suddenly grasping that when I was at the, the Mobile World Congress event in Barcelona a month ago, um, I went to see Huawei and they introduced me to their head of communications for, for, the, for the mining industry. And I was like, well, that's a strange flex. How big could that be? Well, you know, it turns out mining is a $2 trillion, $2 trillion industry. So if you spend some fraction of that on uh, using 5G to automate your underground diggers, save lives, made things vastly more efficient. It's actually very, 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 uh, very large number indeed. And then I went from Huawei over to Ericsson and I was saying, well, what's going on with private 5G? And they said, well, you know, the mining market has absolutely taken off. Uh, and then uh, when I went to see Nokia, they named mining as the number one application now uh, for, for private 5G that they're seeing. And I just thought that that was really surprising because I didn't know that, and I'm, I'm interested in things I don't know, but I think a lot of other companies didn't know that either. Obviously, there are tons of uh, vertical applications, and I think that the goal for uh, service providers often has been to go as horizontal as you can with your application. Voice, there's a nice horizontal application. Everybody has to pay a bit of money. Internet access. Right. Well, now we're finding that we have to work a little bit, a little bit harder in life to make our money, but if we do that, that the rewards are absolutely vast. Uh, and that's what we're seeing around, you know, everybody talked about aut automotive as, as, as the big application, and now it's been overtaken by a bunch of other stuff. And we're only just getting start, started on life sciences and things like that. So that's, that's where I think the money is going to be coming from. It's where we're focusing a lot of effort. What I didn't expect as a last thought to see after launching Silver Linings in January was that the entire dialogue or at least 50% of it moved into a cloud plus 5G conversation uh, with uh, service providers and telcos. That was very surprising to me. Uh, but it, it sort of makes sense that we're not talking about distinct network elements anymore, are we? We're talking about one solution and people are buying, uh, they're buying business outcomes. They're not buying technology anymore. So, you know, that, that, that's part of this, this uh, global trend that we're seeing right now, I think. Well, Steve, thanks again. This was super cool. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope to have you back on the show sometime soon. Best of luck with Silver Linings. I, I mean, I really, I've, I've learned a lot and I uh, really appreciate 
working with you guys at Aviatrix. I think you guys are doing a, a hell of a job and a fascinating company. Uh, I'll come back anytime, but you come on my show next time and then we'll, we'll talk there. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Woody. All right. Take care.